Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light and the CEO of the Robert Menzies Institute. The Institute is a prime ministerial library and museum devoted to upholding the legacy and vision of Sir Robert Menzies, Australia's longest serving prime minister. On Afternoon Light, we explore contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Hello. In the second of our series on Afternoon Light on the ANZUS 70th anniversary, we have with us today Professor Tim Lynch, who is a professor in American politics and the Associate Dean International at the Faculty of Arts at the University of Melbourne. Tim has written several books on American foreign policy, the latest of which is In the Shadow of the Cold War, American Foreign Policy from George Bush Senior to Donald Trump, which I haven't read yet, but I am very much looking forward to getting my hands on it, Tim. Welcome to Afternoon Light and thank you for taking the time to talk to us about ANZUS. Well, Georgina, thanks for that very generous introduction and I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Tim, I wanted to start by asking you about what the geopolitical context was at the time when ANZUS was signed in 1951. It was obviously at the beginning of the Cold War, the Second World War had ended six years before, but there was also, a, of course, the period of decolonisation throughout the world, the European empires, the, the British Empire, of course, the Dutch and others were starting, their colonies were starting to become independent and, and that brought with it complications particularly for Australia in our near near region. So can you talk us through your take on, on that geopolitical context and, and of course what how that how that led Australia and the United States and we shouldn't forget of course New Zealand to signing the treaty in nineteen fifty one. Yes, well it's hard to exaggerate the extent of geopolitical turmoil that surrounds the signing of ANZUS. I mean, we've had nine eleven, we're in the COVID pandemic at the moment, but even those two great crises are small compared to the world as it looked circa 1950. And you pick your region and pick your issue, but the world has come through its greatest bloodletting in the Second World War. And rather than this issue in inaugurate a period of peace and prosperity, what you've got is the emergence of two armed camps with people on both sides facing basic struggles for ordinary human necessities. And this applies to the West as well as to the, to the East. And importantly, I think what's different at the end of the Second World War compared to the end of the First World War is how far America is, by 1950, showing a distinct resolve to stick around. In the 1920s, it, it fled. And in the 1930s, that absence became very apparent and it re-entered the scene in the 1940s, but this time didn't leave. So I think the basic structure of politics, global politics at this, at this point is conditioned by the fact of American power. And while we think of the Soviet Union as the, as the other great armed camp, the relevance of that power is comes from the fact that America is opposing it. So you've got a move to bipolarity. We've ended a 500-year experiment in multipolarity, and it's now two sides 
and all the smaller powers get to pick, uh, sometimes under duress or, or, or over which side they join. And Australia is one of those small middle powers that's obliged to make some decisions, not decisions that it has to weigh very carefully. It's clear Australia is going to be on the, on the Western US side. But there's a way of doing that which uh, advantages its national interest. And there, there could have been ways of doing it which, which didn't. So it's, it's not that the choice is easy, but, the, but the, the, the choice is there for states like Australia. So just to fill out the, the wider picture, you've got an Eastern Europe which is being colonised by the Soviet Union, who in some justifiable way want to reinstitute a buffer zone against the depredations of German, West German behaviour, the great bloodletting of the Second World War was on that Eastern Front. And you've, you've got um, across the world an emerging proclivity for communism, um, which presents itself in 1949 in, in China. Um, you, it becomes an expansionist force in Korea the next year. In 1952, soon after ANZUS, the USSR, explodes its first hydrogen bomb. So it's hard to overstate the stakes that Australia and New Zealand must navigate in this new world order. Yes, it must have been quite, I think, terrifying for Australians facing, they'd obviously faced the, the threat during the Second World War from Japan, but then seeing the, that bifurcation across the globe between the, the West and, and the USSR and the communist forces must have been um, quite a quite a terrifying time and um, and of course as you were saying Tim these sort of ebbs and flows of US isolationism too there must have been a bit of concern presumably that the US could once again retreat into isolationism. Yes it does have of course built into its history this this abandonment of its allies and we've seen it we might get to this later on but we've seen a, a pretty egregious example of that in Afghanistan in in, in, in the last few weeks. But yes, Australia's interest here, and it makes it Australia sound like a cynical, realist power. And of course, in some ways it is, though not only that, it must look to replace the protection of Great Britain that's essentially bankrupted itself in the war against fascism. It must replace that support, that aid, that sucker, with American power. There's no alternative, really, so what Menzies, the challenge Menzies faces, who is as bad as ang Anglophile as you can come in terms of Australian prime ministers, he's got to move beyond that and, and build a security alliance as formal as he can make it with the world's most important free nation, the United States. And the, you, may, you raise a very good point that Australia, though it's distant, and we think of Australia as, as being a long way from anywhere, it was attacked in some ways more viscerally by the empire of Japan than was the United States. And the United States homeland was not struck um, in 1941 in Hawaii, not, not yet a state. Whereas Darwin, one of Australia's key cities, was, was attacked. The Japanese got as far as, as uh, placing mines in Sydney Harbour. That makes the war for Australians not a distant thing, but a very, very real and present thing. So how you realise security, having lived through its violation, becomes a central concern of Australian policymakers. 
Yes, absolutely. And I, I've, I've been talking to um, other guests about this, that, that ANZUS was really struck because there was a confluence of interests rather than values. We talk a lot, and we can talk about this later, but we talk a lot these days when we're talking about ANZUS about the, the, the shared values of the United States and Australia, but it was, it was actually the shared interests of the United States and Australia that, that brought us together and they can converge, but of course interests and values are not identical. And I think Menzies was much more than his opponents in politics. He was much more of a realist, less, less committed to idealism of the United Nations and, and global government. I wanted to um, ask you about the, the identities on the American side at that time in, in the early 1950s, late 1940s. So President Truman was the president of the United States and he'd appointed as, a, as an advisor uh, John Foster Dulles, who, who then became, after the ANZUS was signed, the US Secretary of State. But um, how, did, how did Truman and, and John Foster Dulles and others change their minds when it came to ANZUS? Because there was definitely a reticence initially to, to enter into a security pact with Australia. I think, you know, Truman was fairly sceptical that it, that it was in the US interest. But um, the identities there, particularly John Foster Dulles, he, he, was, he was the one who really championed it from the, the US side and his counterpart on the Australian side was Percy Spender, who was external affairs minister until early in 51 and then, and then rather mysteriously left politics to become Australia's ambassador to the United States. But the, but the people involved here were incredibly important, weren't they, Tim? Yes, I think that's very true. And your your previous comment that it was interests that drove the uh, ANZUS alliance rather than the, the, rather than values is captured, I think, in the in the personnel that led the led the negotiation and the and the final ratification. John Foster Dulles, key, of course, is that as Truman's uh, special representative, a kind of czar for uh, uh, the Asia Pacific, who goes on to be one of the most considerable. Secretaries of State under Truman's successor. Well, he ended up getting an airport named after him in Washington DC. Well, it is. Uh, it, it does. It does. Uh, if you can get an airport named after you, it does suggest. Um, I, I, I don't think the Kevin Rudd International Airport, Canberra, is is a likely prospect. But Reagan and Dulles and Kennedy, yes, it does speak to the to the impact these individuals had on on American politics and history. And Dulles, I think, represents that great confluence of interests and values, but primarily interests. This wasn't a stampede into embrace uh, the Antipodean powers. This was a way of getting Australia and New Zealand to budge on the issue of Japan, because America, uh, as Dulles well understood, needed a healthy, wealthy Japan, not a, not a, not a penalised Japan, which was not much more Menzies' concern. Um, it needed to atone for its fascism. Uh, Dulles comes along and says, no, we need to build Japan into this, this security alliance. And Australia potentially stood in the way of that. So uh, ANZUS was a way of appeasing Australian concerns about a re-empowered Japan. That speaks to security interests far more than it does values. This, of course, become, I mean, Japan now is, one of, is in a very close uh, alliance of both interests and values with Australia. But that took 
a very realistic assessment of Australian concerns and of, of Japanese potential in the late 1940s, early 1950s. So, and, and Dulles, as a, as a great reader of geopolitics, understood this really well. And I think, I mean, this notion of soulmates is exaggerated, but he found in his counterparts in Australia and New Zealand two officials who did kind of get it and who were keen to in, engage in a negotiation and, they, and fundamentally, ultimately, a compromise over the security interests of those three powers, um, th th those three powers which signed the ANZUS Treaty. Yes, and, and look, Spender, from the Australian side, um, Percy Spender is, is usually seen as the father or the great champion of ANZUS. So, of course, you know, success has a, a thousand fathers, failure none. Um, so there are others that, that definitely contributed in the Australian side and, and John Curtin and Chifley, were, uh, were, of course, very keen for an ANZUS, but, but were rebuffed by US presidents at the time. I think uh, when <laughs> Curtin said in 1941, as he saw Britain focusing less and less on, on Australia's interests and in Asia and the Pacific during World War II, and John Curtin said, that Australia needed to look to America that could no longer look to, the, to Britain for its security Roosevelt, who was president of the United States at the time, dismissed Curtin's comments and said it tasted of panic and disloyalty, which really was a pretty, pretty strong rebuff to Curtin's um, plea for assistance, which of course, you know, was a genuine one given what happened in Singapore and then in Darwin, and as you were saying to me in Sydney. Anzus has, as it was signed in, in 51, it made sense to John Dulles Foster and, and, and Spender, but Menzies was pretty dismissive of it. He said, and look, Percy Spender says this in his memoirs, that, that Menzies himself was, look, accepted that, that it, it should be done but didn't think it amounted to much. It's actually a very, very short agreement. I think it's about 850 words and there are 11 articles. And he said that it was built on a superstructure with a foundation of jelly, that, that it really would never amount to very much. But then at the end of his career, he reflects on it as his greatest achievement of his government of the Menzies era. So he had a, a, a huge change of heart. But he did accept clearly that there was a future with Japan, which I, I think is, is probably underappreciated when we think about the Anza story. That, and of course, in 1957, he did the um, he signed the Commerce Agreement with Japan, which really paved the way for a hugely successful economic relationship with Japan, who just 12 years before had been the the key aggressor for the Australians and uh, and the Allies. Yes, I think that's a that that's that's very well very well put, Georgina. That Menzies suggested he was an Anglophile. I don't mean that as a pejorative, but I think in a realistic sense, he thought that any viable international agreement would have to have a place for, for Great Britain. But the insistence the Americans have with ANSUS is that Britain doesn't have this role. Britain tries to get in on it, but is, but is sidelined. And this, as you illustrate there, makes ANSUS seem in, in some way jelly-like and not, not substantial. It's only with, really with the spirit of ANSOS rather than its letter that you get a more formalised 
American penetration of Australia's region. And it's only through Australian loyalty that this, this protection is, is reciprocated. It's often said, and it, perhaps it's become a hackneyed metaphor to explain ANSOS, but I, I still think it's relevant that what Menzies and Spender understood was that they were taking out an insurance policy with the United States through ANSOS. We will keep supporting you in your actions around the world, most immediately in Korea and then, then most obviously in Vietnam up through the present. If by doing this, you will honour the terms of the R aid if we're attacked. But part of the consciousness at that point was a resurgent Japan. We find this remarkable now, explaining this to students, that Australians could be scared by Japanese power post-Second World War. We think China becomes the bogeyman very quickly. China, of course, isn't the threat that we think of it now. China, even though there was a civil war which conditioned their approach, but China had fought on Australia's side, on America's side against Japan. Menzies was not perturbed by the the creation of the People's Republic in 1949, as he was by concerns that Japan would be given a free hand to remilitarize. Uh, and that, that, that is a remarkable thing to, to reflect back on, given where, where we're at, where we're at in the, in the current moment. Well, that's right, with the development of the Quad, with the US, India, Australia and Japan joining together to, well, at least at this stage, to talk about the, the threat of China and, and how, to, how to manage a rising China and its challenge to, to US predominance in the region, in, yes, go backwards 70 years ago and you cannot possibly imagine that those four countries would come together. I mean, India through the non-aligned movement and Nehru becoming quite an antagonist to Australia and the United States, it, it defies belief, but it also makes you realise how... Um, how the identities of your of your of your professed enemies and and allies can can change and be quite fluid over time. I, I wanted to ask you about how the ANZUS has evolved over its seventy year history. It's not always been straightforward, and as we've talked about, it's it it is nicely framed in terms of values these days. But sometimes the interests that that actually define the behaviour that sits under ANZUS uh, don't converge between Australia and the United States. Of course, New Zealand left the ANZUS in um, the 1980s when it uh, took a, a policy of nuclear disarmament and, and moved away from the United States and nuclear power. Uh, but, but it has been under strain from time to time and uh, in, quite early in its history, in, in nine, early 1960s, during the Confrontazi, that was a, a key moment when the ANZUS was under under strain. Or, but there have been other times, haven't there, Tim, where the, the ANZUS has come under strain? Yes, it's, if, if it, ANZUS creates a, something of a, of a marriage between these three powers, it's certainly true that this marriage has had moments not quite of separation, but where there's been some counselling involved and some quite heated arguments, but, but never full separation. I suppose the, the argument could be made that it's not ANZUS that actually is, is the source of both the cooperation and the friction within it, but ANZUS recognises a, a, a defensive alliance, which probably, we don't know, and we, it's hard to run a counter, counterfactual, 
but an alliance that would have taken shape and form anyway. It's great test, of course, as you've, you've already alluded to, is in Australia's region, in Southeast Asia, and most particularly in Vietnam. Now, Vietnam as an expression of ANZUS, or the logic of ANZUS, is a really intriguing issue to, to, to deal with. What Vietnam does, which is different from previous American wars, it, it commands no support from the British. Now, what Australia has done um, since the Second, uh, First World War is follow Britain's lead in joining the United States or following Britain's lead and then the US coming on side, as, it, as, as is the case in the First and Second World Wars. In Vietnam, you don't get British support, but you get, to call it vociferous, I think maybe overstating it, but a, a keen desire on the, on the part of the Australian government to come to America's aid, not, not on their own. South Korea, Thailand, also in, in small but important contributions. Now, is this a way of testing the, the, uh, the emerging strength of ANZUS? Yes, I think partly so, but I, I also think it, it speaks to an, an emerging consensus within Australian politics that communism, which wasn't the case, I think, when ANZUS was formed, Communism now emanating from the People's Republic and from North Vietnam who are in a, uh, an alliance in this war represents a, a greater danger. And that greater danger requires supporting the United States when it faces it down. Um, so it ceases to be, I think, a, a colonial issue in the way that Malaya and Indonesia were. They're, in some ways, they're the last great colonial confrontations. I mean, Britain is, is almost entirely spent at this point. Whereas Vietnam represents an important battle in the Cold War, what's going to become the, the, the second stage of the Cold War. And, and Australia is, is prepared to shed blood and treasure to uphold the, 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 the friendship with the United States. But, but it's imperfect and it creates, we think of the social dislocations it causes in the United States and on the American campus particularly, they were mirrored, I mean, perhaps of smaller scale, but of the same intensity on campuses across, across Australia, uh, on Ligon Street in Sydney. So it, the popular validation of ANSOS has always been more sceptical than its leaders would like. And Vietnam was a great test of that. Iraq, after 2003, and Afghanistan became, became great tests, validated by leaders but disputed often by uh, popular opinion. I, I want to understand, Tim, the US perspective here, because I think, I think people are in Australia fairly familiar with how Australian governments and Australia's defence and foreign policy community engage with the United States, value the United States' presence, and there's certainly bipartisan agreement on the value of ANZUS and the alliance and, and the importance of US presence in our region and commitment, long-term commitment to our region for, for peace and security and upholding the rule of law. But, but the, U, I mean, the US has, has several alliances. Its foreign policy goes way beyond the Pacific. How important has the alliance been to, to the US? And I think another big agreement, NATO, is, the, uh, is, a, is a good comparison here. I mean, NATO does have that huge structure around it and um, U.S. bases throughout Europe. It, you know, do, do, do U.S. decision makers think more about NATO than they would ANZUS, or do, is it is it silly to compare them? Oh, I don't think it's silly to compare them, but it, it's appropriate to compare them. And and though I want Australia 
uh, to matter in, in everything that it does. The, in, in, the reality, Georgina, is that Australia matters much, much less in American thinking, in American strategy, than NATO does. So to go back to the genesis of ANSYS in the beginning, the Americans didn't want to create a NATO equivalent in the Pacific. NATO is expensive. We saw under the last Trump administration, and he, his, one of his central complaints was that how much NATO was spending on its, its headquarters and how little it was spending on its own defense. That was left to the Americans to subvent. At the beginning, this was a, a, a concern of, of both Truman and especially the Eisenhower administration. Eisenhower was notoriously penny-pinching and thought America was spending far too much on the security of others. So he, the, the creation of a NATO in the Pacific was a non-starter. So much as it may upset Australian scholars of the alliance, if you did a, I, uh, I did it in preparation for our discussion today, if you look in the index, of all the significant books about US foreign policy of the last 10, 20 years, most of them, certainly the ones on my shelf, have no reference to Australia at all. I mean, at all. Histories of American foreign policy since the end of the Cold War, since the end of World War II, um, give space to consideration of Australian security interests, a very, very tiny amount of, uh, of thought. You contrast that to Europe, and, and you see how, how clear that contrast is. And, the, the, and a good illustration of this at two levels would be Barack Obama. Remember him? Who he, um, he, his very large autobiography has not one mention of Australia in it. I know it's only the first edition, but I, I don't think it's going to, the frequency of references is going to increase any. And on the second level, if you look back at the Obama administration, he made great play of the pivot to Asia. And of course, he was very keen on the Darwin deal, the troop rotation through, through Darwin, US troop rotation through Darwin, the Marines. But in some ways, that belies how vacuous uh, American policy has been towards our region. But in Obama's case, and in Trump's as well, he was much more interested in Europe. Obama to become more like Europeans and Trump to define himself against what he saw as the, uh, uh, the, the left-wing politics of the European Union. We're always, we as in uh, Australia New Zealand, are always much more of a, a secondary, if not tertiary issue. That doesn't mean we're not popular and have no leverage but we're not front and centre. And I, I mean, just anecdotally, not speaking as a scholar, but as, as someone that's, that's now Australian and spent most of his career working across the, the, the US, UK and Australia, I, I know of no other bilateral relationship which is, is as warm as that between the US and Australia, where, where the, the basic sense that uh, Australians have that Americans are like them is deeper, I think, than that between the British and the Americans. But that's belied, I think, by how far that's reciprocated in a strategic sense. Australia is kind of important, but is it front and centre in, in American geostrategic planning? No, it's not. And that may be one of the reasons why 
America's been caught flat-footed when it comes to the rise of China is, is really focusing too much on, on Middle East theatres of war, on, on Europe, um, the Atlantic, the Mediterranean, uh, those regions, rather than thinking, they obviously think deeply about the Pacific, but, but do they think about the interests that, that, that worry Australian strategic thinkers most, which actually deal into the rise of China and its, and its broader influences throughout the region? And we've, we've talked about the, the threat of communism in the 1950s. And in, it's a, it's a, the China under the Chinese Communist Party is, of course, a particular brand of communism with you know, communism with Chinese characteristics, as they like to say. But uh, you know, once again, we have a, a sort of a, a so-called enemy that is from our north that we've we've taken seriously. I mean, we're feeling the full brunt of it. But but you know, how do you capture the attention, serious attention, strategic attention of the US? And you you have to appeal to their interests ultimately. That it has to be about interests. I wanted to finish discussion today, Tim, uh, talking about Afghanistan. Uh, as I said earlier, the only time ANZUS has been invoked was after 9-11. Obviously, the attacks on the World Trade Centre, the Pentagon, and the plane crashing into the field en route, we think, to the White House by terrorists backed by al-Qaeda on September the 11th, 2001, was a, was a, um, a, a tragic catastrophic moment for the United States. But John Howard, the Prime Minister of Australia at the time, happened to be in the United States at that time and uh, and he he swiftly invoked the ANZUS and said Australia would come to the US's aid. And, of course, the US then went into Afghanistan shortly afterwards to, to overthrow the Taliban who had been providing succour to Osama bin Laden, the, the head of al-Qaeda terrorist network. But what we've seen over the last few days, a few weeks, is the US withdrawal from Afghanistan, which, which the Trump administration had, had planned for, and, and now the Biden administration is implementing. Uh, the scenes have been, I don't think it's um, mincing words to say uh, catastrophic. They have been catastrophic, and they're catastrophic for the Afghans who lived a relatively peaceful life under uh, the support of the US and allied forces there. And the um, the future looks pretty bleak for those who oppose Taliban rule. The Taliban's swiftly taken over and there are lots of questions about whether 20 years in Afghanistan was for naught, whether whether the, the war there should have should have ever been entered into, whether it was a um, it was it was always going to end this way, or whether the US should have stayed on and uh, and this is just another body blow to, to US power and, and uh, evidence of US decline. I wanted to ask you for your reflections on this and also how you see it evolving as potentially an opportunity for, for revisionist powers like Russia and China to come in and, and, and eat away at, at US preeminence in, in that region and, and globally. Yes, I think Afghanistan, of course, is something we're all going to have to wrestle with uh, and have wrestled with for the last two decades. America has spent $2 trillion, ex uh, lost hundreds of thousands of its own men. Australia uh, 
has lost over 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 fifty personnel in that war uh, to replace the Taliban with the Taliban. Uh, it looks like a catastrophic failure. So I suppose there's two points of interpretation, and we'll see which one wins out as we move further away from the withdrawal. The first one is the indictment of the action. This presages American decline or proves it. America is a, I mean, this is a, a caricature, but America is a woke, progressive power that's keen to decolonize itself. So what does it do? It decolonizes from um, this colonial project in, in, in Afghanistan and essentially runs away. It has a long studied history of doing so from uh, removing union forces uh, across the American South in the 1870s which led to a hundred years of Southern racism towards African-Americans through the desertion of Iraq after the 91 war, the abandonment of Syria in 2011 and the Kurds under Donald Trump. So there's a long, sorry history. And at Vietnam, of course, in 1975, the, the scramble to, to, to leave Saigon. These are all in some ways mirrored or refracted through the terrible images we've seen in Afghanistan. The alternative account, I think, is that, and we, ask the, we should ask the question, what would China and Russia, as the two great geostrategic opponents of US power, what would they want America to have done in Afghanistan? And a potential answer is they would have wanted America to keep bleeding into the Afghan soil, to keep spending its blood and treasure, maintaining a, 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 an elusive uh, security. Or aren't they more afraid that America now has, it can police this theater, the threat of terrorism has been exaggerated, it has absolute command in and around the Afghanistan theater. Isn't it now free, Beijing is asking itself, to take more seriously the threat that Chinese expansionism and revisionism poses? And the, one of the central analogies that we're dealing with is how far Taiwan's fate has been sealed by what's happened to Afghanistan. But I think the lesson here is a mixed one for America's opponents, that in some ways, if America can show renewed resolve without the draining effect of Afghanistan, it could return as a much more considerable power. This, of course, has to be balanced against the terrible optics and sense of betrayal, and just the sheer decline of prestige, in prestige that cutting and running from Afghanistan has generated. But I don't, I think this is a debate that will play itself out, and that one side or the other hasn't yet been decisive. I think that's a really interesting take, and it's certainly not uh, one that I've seen in the commentary that much. So I'm really, I'm really pleased that We've had the opportunity to discuss that. And I think in terms of the, uh, the weeks and months ahead, that, that, that damage to US prestige, at least within the Australian community, will, will be played out because people will see those images in Afghanistan and, and, and feel a sense of obligation to the people of Afghanistan and blame the Biden administration for this, fairly or not. Whether the Biden administration, if it happens in the next few years, or a, or a Harris administration in the future potentially, has the commitment to Taiwan and upholding the peace and security and the status quo in the in the in the Indo-Pacific region, 
I think remains to be seen. The the approach at the moment is is one to you know as uh, as uh, as Donald Trump put it, get out of these forever wars and uh, you know a Taiwan war potentially has could become a another forever war and and you know when it comes to U.S. foreign policy, domestic politics, of course, will trump trump all others because these presidents want to win re-election or their party wants to win re-election and and they will avoid things that are hugely unpopular which is of course the uh, the important one of the important aspects of democracy and uh and something that that uh, Australia embraces as well. But, Tim, thank you so much for your time today. I have really enjoyed our discussion on ANZUS and uh, and I know our listeners will have too. And uh, it's um, fantastic to have someone of your experience on Afternoon Light. So thank you. Virginia, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about our podcast and, of course, the Institute at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter at rmenziesinst and on LinkedIn. Thank you very much for joining us this week and we hope you can join us next week for another fantastic discussion on the life and legacy of Sir Robert Menzies.